0: Before Jesus was taken to be crucified, he prayed for his disciples and for us. He said, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. What does this perfect unity look like, church? What does it mean to become one? Is a beautiful passage, and, and you just heard Benjamin's voice read it in this video, of, of Jesus praying, a prayer that he made, I mean, hours before he was taken to be crucified, to die, to be tortured, to die, and then to be raised from the dead. And this prayer is beautiful. If you've never sat down and read John chapter 17, it is the outpouring of the heart of Jesus. It's not just doctrine or information. It is his heart encapsulated in a prayer. His heart for the world, his heart for you. And in that prayer, he talks about the people that are his disciples and his followers in that moment, right then and there. Uh, But he also goes on, and in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, and I'm going to read from the New International Version, the NIV, it says, my prayer is not for them alone, not just for the people with me now. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me And I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. That they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought into complete unity. To let the world know that you sent me. And have loved them even as you have loved me. It's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful concept of Jesus imploring God for oneness, of him showing his heart for oneness, and him saying to God, I want not only the people I know today, but every single person who will ever live to experience the kind of oneness with you, God, that you and I, that Jesus and God are experiencing. And I long for that in my life. I long for it. But he goes on to say something else. In fact, he says it twice. He says, not only do I long for it so that we will all experience it, but I long for this to happen as a message to the world. As a message to the world about what's possible. About what could be about what the world could look like together. And so that there would be unity and the world would look at the church, would look at Christians and say, well, this must be a movement of God. Look at the unity. Look at the connectedness. Let their unity be a sign to the world that my message, that the message of Jesus is truth. It's truth. Now, when I read that beautiful passage, two questions come up in my mind today. The first one is, what, what does he really mean? When he says unity, what's he really talking about? What is this oneness and unity? And we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. This is the first lesson of a series about this idea of oneness and unity and what it means to have that in the church. But then there's a second question that comes up in my mind. If this is so important, if this is Jesus' heart, if this is in many ways the essence of how we're going to say to the world that this is the message, Christianity is God's message for the world, that unity will be the essence of that. And we, as Christians all over the world, are followers of Christ. Why are we so terrible at this? Why are we so bad at it? Why, when you think about Christianity, and when so many people think about Christianity, not just in this country, but around the world, they do, the first word that pops out of their mind is not unity. That is not their first thought. Their first thought is division, judgment, condemnation, maybe even arrogance. Why are we here where we are? Well, to talk about that effectively in this first lesson, I think we need to enter another dimension. Not a dimension of sight and sound, but of mind. No, I am not speaking of the twilight zone. I am speaking of what I'm about to do, which is to give you 500 years of church history in eight minutes. Yes. First, I need a drink. It's water. So several centuries ago, a movement started, a project, an experiment. The experiment was focused On knowledge. How can we know what we know? And how can we be sure that what we know is true? That idea launched an era in history called the Renaissance, or the Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason, all the same thing, which was an investigation of how can we know what we know and validate what we know. And some very smart people came up with some methods for how we would do it which led us today to the scientific method. It led to the idea of logic and reason and rationalism. We won't just let our feelings and our emotions and our heritage and our suppositions and our superstitions dictate what's true. We will use science. We will use reason and logic and understanding, and we will arrive at truth. We will objectively, not subjectively, but objectively look at circumstances and data, and we will use rational explanations to understand the world around us. And so we started doing this with the natural world. We started taking our bodies and nature, and we started to categorize and systemize and understand everything. And there were many wonderful things about it in the exploration of knowledge together because it allowed us a framework, a universal, unified framework to talk about things. So that doctors could sit in a room together and have a common language because we had systemized and categorized every part of the body. And botanists could sit around and talk about plants. Because they had categorized and analyzed and systemized every plant they could possibly find and every aspect and every system of how it worked. And we took every animal and we put it inside a kingdom and a phylum and a class and a system and all of these things that we teach our students and our kids about how every animal is categorized, including ourselves. And it allowed us the opportunity to not only know more, but to validate in a unified way how we knew what we knew, and that it was definitely true. It was definitely true. But if you read the writings of the early philosophers of this age of reason, there was more than just we will learn more, we will know more, and we will invent new things and technologies there was an idea that these principles would bring about unity. That they would create in the midst of all of our different countries and religions and languages and tribes a universal language of information and data and facts that we could all agree on and that we could validate and verify as true. And at the heart of it was a movement towards unity of the human race through specific ideas and some amazing things happened because of that because now we could share knowledge in a new universal way and in a universal language of science and reason we were able to create vaccines that had never been created before we could learn things about the natural world that were wonderful and helped us dispel myths and superstitions that had held us back for years we created technologies that brought us to the moon, that brought us to phones in our hands, the internet around the world that connected all of us. That project led to some amazing things. But during that time period, Christianity was existing within that same world of reason and logic. And as we looked as Christians at that effort, we said, well, we strive for unity too. And we want to know what's true and what's not true. What if we took these same paradigms, these same systems, these same ideas, and we applied them to the Bible? And what if we took the Bible and put it into the logic machine of reason and understanding? And just like the scientists were doing, we built universal systems for what's true, for what's right for how the church should be, and what it should be, and how it should run, and how everything should happen. We can systemize this thing. And as we create these elaborate systems of truth and righteousness, we will unify. We will come together, and won't it be glorious? The intention was good. The heart of it was even a pursuit of holiness. But in the process of us creating these systems, in the process of us identifying five acts of worship and three steps to salvation, and five steps to salvation is what I learned. In fact, the first public talk I ever gave in church was about the five steps to salvation. I have an audio cassette of it somewhere and as we created systems of leadership and organization within churches and rules and creeds that were built not just on the Bible but on top of the Bible as we used our logic machines logic which is not in the Bible is a human creation by the way we said this will build truth and we will be able to validate it and verify it and after centuries Of this effort towards unity, we created nothing but division. We created nothing but division. Fights and arguments, situations where we would sit and look at the Bible and parse out a piece of it and say, Well, in this situation, we don't agree with you on this line, but then, oh, now we get to the next line and we don't agree with each other. And so I guess you will have to be over there and I will have to be over here. And we will, you know, not as we argue about this, go over here and over there. And it wasn't a movement towards unity. It was a movement towards disconnection. Towards disharmony. And the same thing ultimately happened in the world of rationalism and in the age of reason. And in modernism. And the idea of modernism, the progress that we looked towards, the technology, we were going to end war, we were going to end famine and poverty, we were going to raise everyone up, we were going to educate the world, and yet very often what we did was not end war, we created more powerful and massive weapons for us to war with each other on. And we didn't end sickness. In fact, some of our vaccines and antibiotics created new types of sickness that had never existed before. And we didn't end poverty. In fact, in some ways, as we in the Western world used technologies to lift ourselves up to new levels, we took other parts of the world and we destroyed their environments and their cultures and their societies as we worked to lift ourselves Wonderful things came out of it, wonderful progress, but also a lot of ugly. And when people about 50 years ago saw that, they started a very different movement, a movement which today we kind of label post-modernism, which is essentially anti-modernism. Those of us that are against modernism are post-modernists. We said this pursuit for centuries of finding universal truth, that doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as truth. There is no real truth. It's all just a story you tell yourself. And all of these ideas about one idea or one culture being superior to another and us pursuing that together, that's not true either. That's all relative as well. And so today as we sit in this society, these two forces battle against each other. These ideas of modernism and this pursuit along with postmodernism which is the idea that nothing is true, which runs into big trouble figuring out what is indeed real news and fake news when nothing is true, which creates more confusion in all of us about how we can know what we know and know that we know it and know that it's true. Maybe that idea didn't work as well as we hoped it would in leading us to unity both in our world and in our churches. But what do we do instead? I am not ready to leave behind the idea that we can look at the Bible and know what is true and learn truth and gather truth. That is important. That is important. But I am also, and I am not ready either, to say that that truth and our ideas of parsing and systemizing and taking stands that that will lead us to the greatest truth in unity because we certainly have a track record of that not being true either. So I'm not ready to throw that out. Where, What side should I take in this cultural religious battle for truth? Where can I stand? Where can I draw the line and hold my ground as a Christian? Stand for what's right. And promote unity because as I was taught as a young person isn't the unity of the church built on agreement on doctrine isn't the foundation of a church that we all agree on theology on those practices isn't that what this is that's what I grew up with And yet, the more and even in my own anecdotal stories, I watched that over time. I saw that it didn't lead to unified, compassionate Christians, unified, compassionate churches. It led to brittle, broken, angry, frustrated, sometimes selfish churches where people would say things like, Well, I'm objective, you're stubborn, I'm right. My system is superior to yours. But what could we do instead? Could there be another way besides these two opposing ways? Could there be a third way? And this morning, I want to present an image, an idea. Because this morning, I'm not going to answer that question. We've got a series ahead that I'm so excited about to answer that question. But to at least to try to answer that question together. And maybe more important than answering the question, to start asking better questions, different questions. But the image that for me is helpful in this discussion is not the image of saying I am going to stand In the place I am, I'm going to draw a line and I will never cross it. It is not the image necessarily of we are soldiers in an army and we have decided our battle plan in advance and we will fight and destroy anyone that does not agree with us. Perhaps instead it's a story about a guy named Jacob who lived centuries ago. A guy who had to leave his home Leave his family because he deceived them. He deceived his father, he deceived his brother, tricked them, and he was forced to leave his home and to spend decades away from the people he loved and the people that loved him building a brand new life. Decades after that deception, Jacob is traveling through the land, he says, your brother, he's down the road. As we encounter and go further, we're going to meet your brother. This man who you deceived and hurt and tricked all these years ago, this man who you've been running from for decades, we're about to encounter him. Well, that night, Jacob, the night before he's going to meet his brother, Jacob sends everyone away. His wives, his children, his servants. And in the middle of the night, in a weird passage in the book of Genesis, Jacob has a wrestling match with a guy. It doesn't say specifically it's an angel, but we kind of get a sense that it is. It says it's a man. So for some reason, Jacob all alone has a wrestling match and they wrestled all night. I can't wrestle for more than three minutes. Yes, because I give up. Jacob wrestled with this dude all night. And he would not give up until finally this angel or presence of God like did this finishing move that like injured Jacob's hip. In fact, because Jacob would not stop wrestling, the angel or presence of god had to give him this injury that caused him to limp probably for the rest of his life and jacob finally says uncle uncle i'll quit i'm done and then after all this wrestling hours of wrestling this angel says to jacob what's your name jacob says my name is jacob and the angel says that is not your name your name is now Israel. Israel, the name that would be the name given to an entire nation of people who would be called the children of Israel. Israel, the name of a country that still to this day exists in the modern world, one of the only countries left that still has the same name that it had way back then. Still, it's Israel. Why did the angel change his name to Israel? That word means to wrestle with God, to struggle with God. That's Israel. An entire nation named after the idea of the struggle, not the arrival, not the destination. Not the, here is where I stand, and I shall not be moved. They are the children of wrestling. Struggle. That image, that idea of the struggle, the growth, the fight, the battle, that's not one that I really grew up with in terms of church. Churches were about finding their positions, writing their positions, taking their stands and battling to the death on those doctrines and those ideas. And many churches become defined by those stands. And if you ask many people in this world what church is, what Christianity is, they will not talk about unity and they will not talk about compassion. And they will not talk about love and peace. They will talk about things that churches declare that they are against. That they will stand for. That they will fight for. That they will picket for. That they will lobby for. That they will die for. But what if... What if... There's another metaphor. Another image for us. What if although we do stand for the truth, we do fight for the truth, we do defend the truth. Deeper in our being, we struggle. We wrestle for unity, for oneness. We enter into the uncomfortable spaces required to let go of our systems and our logic and our reasoning and all of the things we've put together over the years that are the systems that seem to be the only foundation we can build our churches and our lives and our moral standings and our families on. And instead we say, you know, you and I, we disagree, but I will enter into the struggle of unity. Not to fight against you, not to wrestle with you, but to wrestle inside myself, to struggle with myself about whether my comfort in this is more important than our connectedness, our oneness. Now, as I say all of that, you may be saying, Brett, that that sounds nice, But I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that means. We have a series for that. And it's coming. It's coming. But my hope today is that you, in your heart, will walk away from today, not necessarily with more answers, but with some questions. Some new questions. About what church unity is about about what connectedness between Christians is about, about what the foundation of it really is, and about how every single one of us can be in contribution to what Paul called the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. How do we pursue it together? Not just with the people in this room, but with every Christian, every believer In this town, in this nation, in this world, that they would all be one, that we would all be one, as God and Jesus were and are one, that the world would know, that they would know, that they'd know, not because they proved it in a lab. Not because it went through the scientific method, but that they would know who Jesus is and that he was indeed sent by God because they see our unity, because they see our commitment to know each other, to hear each other, to care for each other, and to be together one family, one body, one movement, one heart in the presence of Jesus Christ in this world. Let's pray. Father, in all nations, in all worlds, at all times, you have longed for us to be one. You have called out to our hearts and to our spirits for oneness, for connectedness. And deep down inside us, we feel that longing that you put there, that you gave to us. And so, Father, give us courage to pursue hard questions, to go beyond easy answers. Help us to be open to hear each other, to see each other, to see our hearts, and to experience the good and the beauty that you have placed in each one of us. Open our eyes, open our vision. Help us to learn from each other, to be open to growth, and help us to grow in our knowledge, in our wisdom, in our maturity, in our behavior, in our thoughts, in our prayers, in our quiet moments, and in our moments together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.